I believe in responsible, collaborative leadership. Anyone can come up with ideas. We as a group can make decisions. We as a group have a really good idea of what a bad decision or a good decision is. But when we go into this situation where we're all Brady Bunch blocks in a Zoom call, then we start to become silos of one. Yeah. That's Jim Benson, lean expert, published author, and coach to many organizations and leaders. We're talking about how Midwest values uniquely elevate people, teams, and organizations. You're listening to Hashtag Midwest. I'm Cream Pipito. And I'm Jason Montag. This is episode 101 of Executive Stories. Jason. Hi, Cream. I am really excited to share a conversation that I've had with a good friend of mine, Jim Vinson. Jim leads teams around the world, but he was born right here in the Midwest, educated in the Midwest, and eventually he extended his Midwestern values globally. And his story really inspired me, which is why I asked him to chat. Well, for our listeners, that is really the point of this program, right? This is the first of what we hope to be many executive stories from tech professionals who either came from or are still active in the Midwest. Stories that will inspire you. I agree, and I am very excited to be kicking this project off with you as well. I just feel like this is the right time for a project like this. Leadership plays a large role in the success of any company. Yeah. But in Wisconsin alone, last time I checked, there were... 25 Fortune 1000 companies. So we're not talking just any companies. We have Fortune 1000 companies. Yep. And leadership, people, culture, those are all critically important. And it's not just Fortune 1000 companies, but it's all kinds of companies, startups, entrepreneurs, and we have them all in the Midwest, all over our great cities. And so that's a good backdrop for getting back into Jim's story. As you interviewed him, um, you discovered he inherited his inspiration to carry on his Midwestern drive and values. Absolutely. And it came from a pretty interesting place. His great-grandmother, Jim's great-grandmother was Nellie Grayhill Benson. Amongst other things, she was the first woman in Nebraska to go to the university and ran a school. She was the chairwoman of the Board of Control. And this was all at a time when... Women were just getting the right to vote. So interesting. Um, She had a farm. Her husband passed away when they were very young. So she was left with two small kids and uh, and a farm to run. She ran a hospital during World War II. Uh, She, the the woman was just out of control role model (laughs) for both dealing with adversity. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And and not letting anybody else, anybody else's definition of what's possible, you know, stop right. you. Yeah. Um, her husband, um, uh, her husband was D. Alton Benson, and his parents uh, were sodbusters. So my great great grandparents actually settled Nebraska, uh, came out initially, lived in a sod house, which I don't recommend anybody do. (laughs) Uh, And their original um, stand-up house uh, is actually part of a a museum 
uh, in Silver Creek, Nebraska. Is that right? And it is. Yeah. And uh, so I moved to Grand Island, Nebraska and spent my formative years there. And you're just not going to get more rural America E than Grand Island, Nebraska. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and um, almost all of my friends had a farm or a ranch somewhere that we would go to together. So I've done every farming thing. And uh, I remember once uh, uh, I woke up and uh, my friend DJ and his dad, Ernie, were getting their Wagoneer all set up. And I said, what are you guys doing? And they said, there's some problems up at the ranch. So we have to go up there. You want to come with us? And I said, yeah. And there was a couple of maintenance things that needed to happen. But the thing that really, that really was struck me was we you know, had the deep tires on the Wagoneer and we like go all the way out into the middle of this field and there's a calf that has pneumonia. And uh, I remember like helping Ernie pick up and wrestle this calf into the back of the very posh Wagoneer, which was all, you know, surrounded, you know, it was basically this calf with a whole bunch of cardboard around it. Yeah. And then yeah. we drove the calf to the, to the vet. Uh, and it's that kind of thing that I don't find in tech very much when I'm in San Francisco, where there is no emergency that people won't sit around and complain about for days on end. <laughs> <laughs> but in Nebraska, you can't sit around and say, that damn calf, they're yeah. sitting out there. Bleh, bleh, you, know? <laughs> but, you know, you have to like get, you have to go out and you have to do something. And right. uh, so that's one of the things that, um, I noticed when I was in Omaha last time that you can't drive through Omaha now more than two or three blocks without seeing Facebook, LinkedIn, you know, all of the Silicon Valley companies seem to have a presence in Omaha. Right. And that's what I see is, is, is the major difference is that one of the things that those companies are buying into when they buy into the Midwest is they're buying into people who are of Midwesterniness. <laughs> Balanced, healthy people, right? Well, we could just end the program here. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's quite a lot more to the story, actually. Jim's story really does speak volumes about the Midwest work ethic. And the interesting thing is that, you know, as he said, big tech companies are absolutely noticing and they're investing in the Midwest. They're investing in the Midwest, our culture, and our people. Well, what's inspiring about Jim's early years is how he learned of people taking care of people. And as I read through the raw transcript, Jim went on to school in Michigan, decided urban planning would be something he could do to help people. Then he moved out to Seattle to build their light rail system, which I assume moves millions of people around every year. He didn't move to Portland, where he devised and built their 2040 plan, which many believe is responsible for elevating the city, making Portland what it is today. And then Jim went on to become this absolute giant contributor in the tech space. But even then, his drive has always been about the people. Oh, absolutely. And interestingly enough, that's exactly where our conversation went next. That's an interesting way to think about it. Where was the shift for, for your career when you went into, okay, I know I can do software, but I, I actually want to work with people the most? Because that's, that's 
predominantly what you do, right? You're, you're in the business of, uh, psychologically (laughs) helping people (laughs) through their, through their lives. So, uh, if you go down to my basement, uh, there'll be two huge bookshelves of fiction. And then right next to that is two huge book bookshelves of psychology. (laughs) Um, and, uh, so I started off as a psychology major and ended up moving into urban planning because I wanted to apply that psychology, what I, what I liked about psychology on a grander scale. And, um, what I've always been in the business of, uh, whether it was, you know, building subway systems or neighborhoods or uh, when I was uh, a co-chair for the Northwest region for the AIDS quilt uh, or for uh, Gray Hill Solutions or now is I've always wanted people to build an environment in which they could thrive. Okay. And that involves knowing what individuals need like as an individual like as me as Jim or you as Jason or you know uh, but then also generically what do people need (laughs) and then when they form into groups what do the groups need and then how do the groups help or hinder those individuals okay and then how can we build actual systems that say okay this is the work that needs to be done these are the humans that are actually involved in that work these are their little quirks (laughs) Right. right. Uh, So like right now where we have teams that previously were all working right next to each other, even if we got on our each other's nerves from time to time, there was a great deal of reassurance and kind of a pattern that we all adjust to uh, of other people being there. Yeah. And now we've moved to situations where we're all on these camera things <laughs> and that you can't hug that thing. You can't pat it on the back and you can't even want to punch it in the face. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And so that's, that's weird and it's alienating. And so right now, even if our workflow could remain the same, the people who are in that workflow have different needs. And so a lot of what we've been working with our companies lately is saying, okay, you know, who's, who's cool, who's, who's, you know, needing this or who's needing that. And then how does that change the flow of work every day? Yeah. So there's one group we were working with and we'll just, we'll just call them widgets, but they were, they were pumping out about 10 or 12 widgets a week. And then they got um, COVID sequestered. Mm-hmm. And they were still pumping out 10 or 12 widgets a week, but the widgets started to really suck. And I was like, can we right now just stop everything? Just, just this one widget. Let's put this one widget out and let's see how it flows and let's see what's happening. So I slowed them way down and then started to turn, turn the knob up. You know, So next week we're going to do three or four. Um, but we need to recognize that when there's a number, when there's more uncertainty – the people on your team are going to make different decisions and they're going to behave differently. And, you know, they've got kids and cats and all sorts of things in their office now that they didn't have before. So. Right. Right. That's that. I, I think that was, that was the ultimate tangent, but. Uh, no, no, that's a great, I mean, it does, it leads into the primary reason I I wanted to chat today. I mean, obviously that's a huge man. Oh man. I mean, um, understanding how the psychology of the adjustment is going to play out 
is mm-hmm. Im- immensely important. And I, I've, you know, the, the community that, that I felt like I was in, I guess, I, I don't know that I would call myself in it, but um, this agile and lean community in the early yeah. 2000s felt electric in a lot of ways. And, you know, there were some common things that we would just never stop talking about. One of them was remote teams. I mean, that was, <laughs> that happened to be on the list. Um, yep. So it's kind of nice. Uh, it's it's going to be nice to hear your opinions about that. Um, and in, in sort of this ex- grand experiment we're in, but what do you think has changed? What, what was it like then? And kind of contrast that with what it's like now. So um, the difference for me uh, is probably different than most other coaches because most other coaches are coaching about how to deploy a set of practices. And I, uh, I mean, as, as you know, from the first day that we worked together, I'm mostly interested in what does a particular team need to get their work done. Right, right. So that hasn't changed. It's just the number of cues that I have that something might be wrong is less. Okay, I got you. And so that means that I personally feel like I'm working with a diminished, a diminished data set. Um, what I what I will say about just pe- about people in general is that when the number of unknowns or the number amount of change increases, people's tolerance for change decreases, uh, mm-hmm. which is why, you know, uh, lean and agile transformations tend not to work. Okay. It's not because lean or agile are bad. It's because you've introduced change in a way that the group or the organization can't, can't ingest that change. You know, so it's too fast and probably the wrong, the wrong collection of objects. Well, what strikes me to be interesting, especially during this time of a global pandemic, is going back to the middle of this segment. Jim talks about the psychology of helping people yeah. and our own individual psyche and our own mind. Our own mindset is really what we need to be working on. Yeah, and and Jim is a great leader in that sense, helping people pass their own psychological roadblocks, seeing things um, as they are and for themselves, and really making each individual a leader. Jim calls this collaborative leadership, which I think is a really appropriate term. I love it. I have a book that is mostly done called Collaborative Management. Oh, wow. Okay. And I don't really believe in servant leadership, but what I do believe in is responsible collaborative leadership, which is anyone can come up with ideas. We as a group can make decisions. We as a group have a really good idea of what a bad decision or a good decision is. I, as the quote unquote leader, don't have to be there to push the on button for a particular decision, but I do need to be there uh, to make sure that we are in compliance whatever, with whatever we need to be in compliance of, uh, that we're not breaking any of the meta rules from the rest of the company, um, that we are solving uh, any um, uh, bottlenecks or blockages in the flow of value, and that I'm noticing when people that uh, are in my group 
uh, need support, uh, emotional training uh, or otherwise. But when we go into this situation where we're all Brady Bunch blocks in a Zoom call, then we start to become silos of one. Yeah. And that is the number one enemy of any team getting good work done. And that right now is the primary responsibility of any leader is making sure that collaborative work is prioritized above all else so that the internal social system of the team can quality check work, can make sure that the right decisions are being made, that balls aren't being dropped, and that things actually get finished. Maybe we'll end with this. And yep. uh, yeah, I really appreciate uh, really appreciate you doing this for me, man. I really uh, deal. This is fun. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk real soon. Okay. All right. Bye, All right. Midwestern people. <laughs> Bye. During this time of COVID nineteen imposed isolation and remote work, the takeaway for me, Jason, is that. We should always be assessing the health of our teams. Absolutely. And I do think that Jim has really put his finger on the thing that makes teams special, but also the things that make the Midwest special, which is the willingness to work together, to collaborate, to be to drop the ego and to work hard on behalf of one another. And that leadership can really come from anywhere and anyone on the team. Jason, for our listeners, why don't we share the books or uh, websites that they can look up to get to know Jim a little bit more? No, absolutely. He has an organization, a company in Seattle named Modus Cooperandi. You can actually find him at moduscooperandi.com. You can also find him in the book at personalkanban.com. And he's in the middle of another book, but you can get to Personal Kanban. on Amazon and all all of the stores that you would uh, normally find books. Jason, let's wrap up episode 101 of our Hashtag Midwest podcast. We'll continue to bring this uh, inspirational executive stories each month, and we'll be building on the Hashtag Midwest brand over time. And help us bring you stories and ideas that will help and inspire you. Drop us a note at hashtag Midwest.com. The show is produced and edited by Andy Azinger. And our music was written and composed by Todd Dunst. You can find them both on LinkedIn. And until next time, I'm Cream Pepito. And I'm Jason Montag. Thanks for listening to Hashtag Midwest Tech, the Executive Stories Podcast. <laughs>